I tend to think that science can inform all aspects of life, in particular the science of psychology, my, my favorite science. Uh, psychology looks in one direction to biology, to neuroscience, to genetics, to evolution, and it looks in another direction to the rest of intellectual and cultural life, because uh, what are the arts but products of the human mind that resonate to our uh, aesthetic and emotional faculties? Uh, what are social issues but ways in which humans try to uh, coordinate their behavior with one another and, and uh, come to working arrangements that, that benefit everyone? Uh, so there's no aspect of life that I, I don't think can be illuminated, cannot be illuminated by uh, a better understanding of psychology. And for me, the most recent example of that is the process of writing itself. Uh, I'm a psychologist who studies language, a psycholinguist, and uh, I'm also someone who uses language to try to convey ideas in, in writing books about, among other things, the science of language, but also on war and peace and history and uh, emotion and cognition and human nature. So the question that, uh, that I'm currently obsessed with is how does our scientific understanding of language actually uh, be put into practice to improve the way that we communicate uh, anything, including science? That is, can you use linguistics, cognitive science, psycholinguistics to come up with a, a better style manual? Uh, I try to write such a manual myself uh, as a, uh, a kind of 21st century alternative to the classic manuals like Strunk and White's The Elements of Style. Uh, writing is uh, inherently an, uh, a psychological topic. It's a way that one mind can um, cause ideas to happen in another mind. Uh, the medium by which we share ideas, complex ideas, namely language, is something that's been studied intensively for uh, more than half a century. And so if all of that work is of any use whatsoever, it ought to be of use in crafting more stylish and transparent prose, and that's what I try to do. And uh, coming to it from a scientific uh, perspective, uh, my starting point is different from that of traditional manuals, which are often lists of do's and don'ts that are presented um, mechanically and often followed robotically. One of the reasons that I was uh, inspired to, to write this is that I had a, uh, an inept copy editor for one of my pieces of writing who was clearly following guidelines from style manuals unthinkingly, not really understanding what their point was. Uh, an example is Everyone knows that scientists overuse the passive voice. That's one of the signatures of uh, academies. That is, uh, the uh, uh, experiment was performed instead of I performed the experiment. Now, if you follow the guideline, change every passive sentence into an active sentence, you actually don't improve prose because there's no way that the passive construction would have survived in the English language for millennia if it didn't serve some purpose. The problem with any construction like the passive voice isn't that people use it, but they use it too much or in the wrong circumstances. In order to give good advice on how to write, you have to understand what the passive uh, can accomplish, and therefore uh, you should not blue pencil every passive sentence into an active one, as one of my copy editors once did. Uh, so what I try to do is to uh, explain what the, uh, what the rules ought to accomplish, and, and therefore how to think about whether to apply, apply them. And this includes the aspect of writing that gets the most, I 
attention, but is probably least important to good writing, and that is rules of correct usage. Can you split an infinitive? Can you say to boldly go where man, no man has gone before, or should you say to go boldly? Uh, can you use the so-called fused participle? Uh, I approve of Sheila taking the job as, as opposed to I approve of Sheila's taking the job, apostrophe S. And there, I, I discuss a, a hundred of these traditional usage issues, but I put them late in the book because I don't think they're the, what we should concentrate on when we think about how to improve writing. The first thing you have to think about is the very um, stance that you as a writer take in putting pen to paper or fingers to keyboard. The problem with writing is it's cognitively unnatural. In ordinary conversation, we've got another person across from us on the table. We can uh, monitor the other person's uh, facial expressions. Do they furrow their brow? Do they widen their eyes? Do they break in and interrupt you? Uh, unless you're addressing a stranger, you know their background, you know whether they're an adult or a child, whether they're an expert in your field or not. Uh, when you're writing, you have none of those advantages. You're casting your bread uh, onto the waters and you are uh, uh, hoping that this invisible, unknowable audience will, will uh, catch your drift. So the first thing you have to do in writing, well before you start worrying about split infinitives, is what kind of situation are you imagining yourself in? What are you what are you simulating when you write and you're pretending to use language in the ordinary way? And that's the starting point, and, and I suggest that one of the things that distinguishes good, clear, vigorous writing from the kind of mush you see in academies and medicalies and bureaucraties and corporaties and so on is that stance. And the, the, the main stance is an idea that I got from literary scholars Mark Turner and uh, Francis Noël Thomas, is that the model should be a combination of vision and conversation. Namely, when you write, you are pretending that you, you, the writer, see something that's interesting in the world, you are directing the attention of your reader to that thing in the world, and you do so by conversation. That may sound kind of obvious, but it's amazing how many of the bad habits of uh, academies and legalese and so on come from floating that model, from being self-conscious uh, that what that you are not um, naive about the pitfalls of your own enterprise, about you know, being a bad lawyer or a bad scientist or a bad academic, and so uh, bad writing tends to get cluttered with apologies and hedges and somewhats and uh, reviews of the past activity of people like you, as opposed to concentrating on something in the world that you are trying to get someone else to see with their own eyes. That's a starting point. Uh, another aspect of, of uh, writing is being a, uh, an intensive reader. One of the things that you appreciate when you do linguistics is that a language is a combination of some neat, elegant, beautiful, powerful algorithmic rules for combining words uh, in such a way that the meaning of the combination can be deduced from the meanings of the words and the way they're arranged. So if I uh, say that the, uh, the dog bit the man or the man bit the dog, you have two different images because of the way that those are ordered by the rules of English grammar. That's okay. Uh, on the other hand, language has a massive amount of irregularity, idiosyncrasies, 
uh, idioms, figures of speech that you couldn't possibly deduce from rules, because often they are totally illogical. The past tense of, uh, uh, of um, uh, bring is brought, but the past tense of ring is rang, and the past tense of blink is blinked. There isn't any rule that could allow you to predict that. You just have to have sheer raw exposure to language. Rules of punctuation, a lot of them are completely illogical. Uh, if I talk about uh, Pat's dog, uh, it's Pat apostrophe S. If I talk about uh, its hat, I can't use it apostrophe S. That would be illiterate. Why? Who knows? That's just the way uh, English works. It's arbitrary. So being a good writer depends not just on mastering the rules of combination, but of being exposed to tens or hundreds of thousands of examples of language on the printed page. And uh, the first step to being a good writer is to be a good reader, to have read a lot and to savor and try to reverse engineer good prose when, when you find it, to uh, read a passage of writing and think, what did the, how did the writer achieve that effect? Uh, what, what was their trick? Uh, and to read with a little bit of consciousness of what about that sentence makes it so much fun to, to, uh, to skip it over. Yeah, inevitably, what I'm doing in the sense of style is going to be compared to uh, Strunk and White's The Elements of Style, uh, a book that I have read many times, uh, appreciate. It's a, a lovely little book. It's got a lot of insight. It's got a lot of charm. But um, William Strunk, the original author, was born in 1869. This is a man who was born before the invention of the telephone, uh, let alone uh, the uh, computer and the uh, internet and the smartphone. And his sense of style was honed in the later decades of the 19th century. Now, we know that language changes. Uh, you and I don't speak the way people did in Shakespeare's era or in Chaucer's era. And as valuable as the elements of style is, and it's tremendously valuable, uh, it's got a lot of cockamamie advice in it that was just uh, dated by the fact that its authors were born uh, more than 100 years ago, such as never use uh, contact as a verb. Don't say, I'm going to contact him. Uh, they said this is pretentious jargon and, uh, and pompous and self-important, which is kind of a bizarre reaction to anyone speaking today. It's an indispensable word. They said, well, be specific. Say you're going to telephone someone or you're going to write them or you're going to knock on their door. Uh, but the thing is that often it's extremely useful to be able to talk about getting in touch with someone else when you don't care by what medium they're going to do it. So contact is an indispens has become an indispensable word. It was jargon in their time, but if you read the elements of style today, you have no way of, uh, of appreciating that what graded on the ears of someone born in 1869 might be completely unexceptionable today. The other problem is that it was as uh, wonderful a book as it is, it was composed before there existed a serious science of language and of uh, cognition. And so a lot of uh, their advice just depended on their own gut feelings of what um, graded on their ears, uh, their own practice as an English professor or a, a critic, respectively. Uh, now we can offer, I think, deeper advice. We can say why uh, the passive voice, which, by the way, Strunk and White couldn't even identify, not being trained in grammar, uh, we can say what, this is, what a passive is and why it's sometimes, uh, sometimes useful. 
Another thing you have to deal with when you talk about uh, writing from the point of view of uh, linguistics and psycholinguistics is this pseudo-controversy that was ginned up about 50 years ago between so-called prescriptivists and descriptivists. Now, according to this uh, fairy tale, there are prescriptivists who uh, talk about how language ought to be used, and there are descriptivists, mainly academic linguists, who describe how language, in fact, is used, and that there is a war between them, that there are prescriptivist dictionaries and descriptivist dictionaries, uh, and uh, inevitably, uh, the sense of style is going to be called descriptivist, which is wrong on the face of it because it's 300 pages in which I'm bossing people around, so it's certainly prescriptive. But what it does is it questions uh, a number of rules that you'll find in certain uh, style books that are routinely flouted by all the best writers and had no business being in the style books in the first place. They don't make any sense. They violate the the logic of uh, English, and they just get passed down as a kind of uh, folklore uh, from one... um, Uh, style sheet uh, uh, to the next. Uh, This pseudo-controversy was uh, created when Webster's Third International Dictionary was published in the early 1960s. It was, uh, like all dictionaries, it paid attention to the way that language changes. If a dictionary didn't do that, it would be useless. People would be uh, guaranteed to be misunderstood when they they wrote. Uh, For example, there is a prescriptive rule that says that nauseous, which most people use to mean nauseated, cannot mean that. It must mean creating nausea, nauseating. You can say the roller coaster ride was, the roller coaster was nauseous, or the, uh, that movie was nauseous, not I got nauseous riding on the roller coaster. No, no, no one actually obeys this. And if a dictionary were to stick by its guns and say it's an error to say that the movie made me nauseous, it would be a useless dictionary. It wouldn't be doing what a dictionary has to do. And this has always been true of dictionaries. But there's a myth that dictionaries are kind of like the rule book of Major League Baseball. They uh, legislate what is uh, correct, which is just false. And I can speak with some authority there because I'm the chair of the usage panel of the American Heritage Dictionary. And so I have an, an which is dictionary that is uh, allegedly the prescriptivist alternative to the descriptivist Webster's. But at American Heritage, people decide what goes it goes into the dictionary by paying attention to the way people use language. There's just now, of course, it doesn't pay attention to the way everyone uses language because people use language in different ways. When you write, you're writing for a virtual audience of well-read, uh, literate fellow readers, and those are the people that we consult in deciding what goes into the dictionary. Often with usage notes that comment on controversies of usage that people will know what to anticipate. Uh, Now, this entire approach is sometimes criticized by uh, uh, literary writers who are often ignorant of the way that language works and fantasize about some golden age in which dictionaries legislate usage. But language is a grassroots, bottom-up phenomenon, uh, always has been. Uh, and I think that the prescriptivist, descriptivist controversy is kind of like, you know, America, love it or leave it, or nature versus nurture, uh, a euphonious dichotomy that uh, doesn't really help you think. Uh, there, there's a lot of people who get incensed about so-called uh, errors of grammar, which are actually 
perfectly unexceptionable. There was a controversy in the 1960s over the advertising slogan, uh, Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. The, the critics said it should be as a cigarette should. And everyone moaned about the decline of standards, the decline of civilization. Or a more recent example was a, uh, an uh, SAT question. Uh, Tony Morris's, Morrison's genius allowed her to write novels that spoke to the African-American condition. And supposedly that's a grammatical error. Uh, that you can't have uh, Tony Morrison's be an antecedent to the pronoun she. Uh, now, you know, it, it's a complete urban legend that this is an error of grammar. But once an error, once a rumor about a grammatical error uh, gets legs, it uh, will proliferate like an urban legend about alligators in the sewers. And uh, often, critics and um, uh, self-appointed guardians of the language will claim that language is deteriorating because people violate a rule which was never a rule in the first place. Uh, it's just so much fun to be in high dudgeon over the decline of language and civilization that people, these critics, don't stop to actually go to the rule books or the dictionaries to find out how great writers write and to find out the logic of the English language. Yes, yeah, so poets and novelists often have a much better feel for the language than the, uh, the, the self-appointed guardians and uh, pop, pop grammarians, uh, because for them language is a medium. It's a way of conveying ideas and moods and sounds, and um, the most gifted writers uh, of uh, you know, Virginia Woolf and H.G. Wells and George Bernard Shaw and Melville and, uh, and so on. Oh, well, and of course, avant-garde writers will deliberately flout rules and, and, and poets pushing the envelope or expanding the expressive possibilities of the language will deliberately flout rules, including genuine rules that, that, uh, that most people obey. Uh, but even non-avant-garde uh, writers, even writers in the canon, will often write in ways that uh, would be condemned as grammatical errors by many of the so-called uh, uh, purists, sticklers, and mavens. Uh, another uh, bit of psychology that can make anyone a better writer is to be aware of a phenomenon called the curse of knowledge. It actually goes by many names, and many psychologists have rediscovered it. Uh, failure of a theory of mind, uh, egocentrism, um, false consensus. These are all versions of a, an infirmity that we all have, every member of our species, which is it's very hard to imagine what it's like not to know something that you do know. And you know, we see it in kids, there are famous experiments. A kid comes into a room, opens a box of candy, there are pencils inside, kid's surprised, and then you say, uh, well, now Jason's going to come into the room. What does he think is in the box? And the kids will, kid will say, pencils. Jason has no way of knowing that the box has pencils, but the kid is projecting his own state of knowledge onto other people, forgetting that other people don't know what he knows. Now, we laugh at the kids, but it's true of all of us. We, uh, as writers, uh, often use technical terms, abbreviations, assumptions about uh, uh, typical experimental methods, uh, assumptions about what questions are we ask in our own science that our readers have no way of knowing because they haven't been uh, through the same training that we have. So overcoming the curse of knowledge, I consider to be the single uh, most important requirement in becoming a clear writer. 
Uh, and contrary to the common accusation that academic writing is bad because people are trying to bamboozle their audience with highfalutin gobbledygook, uh, I don't think that a lot of bad prose is deliberate. I think it is inept. It is a failure to uh, get inside the head of your uh, reader. And we also know from psychology that simply trying harder to get inside the head of your reader is not the way to do it. Because no matter how hard we try, uh, we're, we're okay, but we're not great at anticipating another person's state of knowledge. You really have to ask. You've got to show people a draft. Uh, it doesn't even have to be a, uh, uh, a layperson. It can be even a colleague. And you're, I'm often astonished at things that I think are obvious that turn out to be not so obvious once other people give me their, their uh, feedback. Another implication of the curse of knowledge is that um, having an editor is a really good thing. <laughs> Not, uh, there are some writers uh, who can dash off a perfectly comprehensible, clear, coherent essay uh, without getting prior feedback from a typical reader, but most of us are, are, don't have that much clairvoyance. We really need someone to say, I don't understand this, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, to say nothing of the uh, attention to the fine points of punctuation, grammar, sentence structure, and so on, that a sophisticated copy editor can add uh, in, in creating value of your, uh, of your written work. For me, the, this topic is fascinating for two completely different reasons. One of them is that what I do for a living is study language as a, as a language scientist, but the other thing that I do is I use language as a, as a science writer. And uh, reflecting on the th thousands of decisions I make as a writer in the lifelong effort to improve my prose, and what I know coming from the other direction as a language scientist, uh, actually studying the process of comprehension and the history of words and the logic of grammar, and often it's illogic, uh, I, it, it's been tremendously uh, uh, stimulating to bring these two together, to think, oh, the reason that I rewrote this sentence that way is because of the, the, the logic of, of subject versus object relative clauses in English grammar, and to think of an experiment on how people understand relative clauses of different kinds and think, oh yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing when I'm touching up my prose and, and switching a subject, object into, a subject relative into an object relative. And I think for me, this is emblematic of what I hope to be an even larger trend in uh, uh, the application of science, particularly psychology and cognitive science, namely that there's no aspect of uh, human uh, communication or, or cultural creation that I think can't benefit from uh, greater application of psychology. Uh, I think that uh, we would have an exciting uh, addition to literary criticism in general if uh, literary critics knew more about uh, linguistics. If, if uh, poetry analysts knew more about phonology, sound structure, about the work on the psychology of the comprehension of metaphor, of the uh, analysis of uh, uh, plot uh, could benefit from a greater understanding of human social conflicts and uh, uh, confluences of ultimate interests that the whole genre of biography uh, would be deepened by an understanding of the nature of human memory, particularly autobiographical memory. How much of our 
own memory of our childhood is uh, real or confabulated. Uh, memory scientists have a lot to say about that. Uh, how much do we uh, try to polish our image of ourselves in both describing ourselves and even recollecting on our own uh, histories? Do we edit our memories in an Orwellian manner to make ourselves uh, more coherent in uh, retrospect? Uh, the, how does a writer use the tenth system of English to convey a sense of immediacy or distance? In music, uh, I, I think that the uh, sciences of auditory and speech perception have much to contribute to how musicians accomplish their uh, their effects. In the visual arts, uh, a, a uh, an old body of uh, criticism going back to uh, Gombrich and Arnheim in collaboration with uh, uh, Richard Gregory, or even before that, um, the art itself of the 1920s was influenced by psychology, thanks to um, uh, the uh, uh, Gertrude Stein, who was a undergraduate student of William James, did a wonderful thesis on uh, divided attention with William James, went to Paris, and she brought a lot of psychology, including the uh, psychology of perception, to the attention of artists like uh, um, Picasso and Braque, and ultimately this, this uh, spread to Paul Clay and and uh, others. We've kind of lost that uh, wonderful synergy between the science of visual perception and uh, the creation of, uh, of visual art. Uh, going beyond the arts, I think that the um, social sciences, such as political science, could uh, uh, benefit from a greater understanding of human moral and social uh, instincts of our uh, psychology of dominance, the uh, psychology of uh, uh, revenge and forgiveness, the psychology of, uh, of um, uh, gratitude and uh, social competition. All of them have great relevance to uh, the uh, international negotiations. We talk about one country being friendly to another or allying or competing, but you know, countries don't have feelings. It's the elites and the leaders uh, who do, and a lot of international politics is driven by the psychology of its leaders, which uh, a whole domain of application that's only beginning to be uh, explored. And even beyond applying the findings of uh, psychology and cognitive science and social and affective neuroscience and so on. There's just a, a mindset of science that I think uh, ought to be exported to cultural inter and intellectual life as a whole. Uh, that consists in um, increased skepticism and scrutiny about factual conventional wisdom. Uh, how much of what you think is true really is true if you go to the, the numbers. Uh, for me, this has been a uh, particular issue in analyzing violence, where the conventional wisdom is that we're living in extraordinarily violent times. But if you, first of all, take into account the psychology of risk perception, as pioneered by Daniel Kahneman and Paul Slovic and uh, Gerd Gigerinzer and many others, you realize that the conventional wisdom is going to be systematically distorted by the source of our information about the world namely the news. News is about the stuff that happens. It's not about stuff that doesn't happen. Human risk perception is affected by memorable examples. 
Tversky and Kahneman's uh, availability heuristic. And so uh, no matter what the rate of violence is objectively, there are always enough examples to, to fill the news. And if our perception is influenced by memorable examples, we'll always think that we're living in violent times. And it's only when you start to apply the scientific mindset to world uh, events, to political science and history, and say, well, how about someone counting how many people are killed now as opposed to 10 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, that you get an accurate picture about the state of the world and the direction that it's going, and which you know, I've argued uh, is largely downward, uh, a conclusion that only came from applying this empirical mindset to the traditional subject matter of history and political science. The other, uh, the other aspect of the scientific mindset that ought to be exported to the rest of intellectual life is the, uh, the search for explanations. That is, not to just ex say that history is one damn thing after another, that stuff happens and there's nothing that uh, we can do to explain why, but to relate phenomena to more, somewhat more basic phenomena, that, uh, the, uh, and then to try to explain those phenomena to still more basic phenomena what we've seen happen in uh, sciences where biology, biological phenomena were uh, explained in part by, at the level of uh, molecules, which were explained at the level of uh, chemistry, which were explained at the level of physics. There's no reason that that can't continue so that biology gives us a grasp of um, the brain and, and the human nature that is a product of the organization of the brain, that societies uh, unfold as they do because you've got brains interacting with other brains and negotiating arrangements to coordinate their behavior uh, uh, and so on. Now the, there's a tremendous resistance to this idea because it's confused with a, uh, a boogeyman called reductionism. The idea that you know, someone's going to try to explain World War I in terms of, of, of genes or elementary particles. And the thing is that explanation does not imply uh, reduction. You reduce the building blocks of an explanation to more complex phenomena one level down, but you don't discard the explanation of the phenomenon itself. So World War I obviously is not going to be explained in terms of neuroscience. On the other hand, World War I could be explained in terms of uh, the emotions of fear and uh, dominance and prestige among leaders, which fell into a deadly combination at that moment in history. And instead of just saying, well, that's the way things are and there's nothing more we can say about it, we can say, well, why do people ha uh, compete for uh, prestige? Why do people uh, have the, the, the fears that they do, in particular world leaders at this time? Uh, it doesn't have to be because I said so or because that's the way it is. You can say, well, how does the psychology of fear work? How does the psychology of dominance work? How does the psychology of coalitions work? Having done that, you get a deeper understanding of some of the causes of World War I. But it doesn't mean you, you throw out the history of World War I. It just means that you enrich it, you diversify it, you deepen it. And uh, this, uh, I think, program of unifying the uh, arts and humanities with the psychological sciences and ultimately the biological sciences just promises tremendous... Uh, uh, increases in depth of understanding for, for all the fields. It's not about individual people. It's, it actually has to be more revolutionary than that, than just reading uh, this, that, or the other person. I think there really has to be a change in mindset 
uh, coming from both directions. It can't. It, it's not just a question of getting traditional uh, scholars in the humanities and social scientists to start uh, incorporating more science, thinking more like scientists, but it's got to work the other direction as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of scientists uh, really are uh, Philistines when it comes to history and political theory and philosophy. Uh, and uh, I think we need to just break down the idea that there are these separate uh, uh, disciplines and, and, uh, and modes of study. Uh, in trying to figure out what would give us the, the deepest, most insightful, most informative uh, understanding of, of, of the world <laughs> and ourselves, uh, what uh, has to be uh, aware of the turf battles in uh, who gets the franchise for talking about what matters. And there is a cadre of uh, traditional intellectuals who have often been uh, hostile to science. I'm not talking about the climate deniers or the vaccine kooks, but uh, who resent the idea that the uh, discussion of what matters, of of morality, of politics, of uh, meaning, of purpose, uh, should be taken on by these Philistines called uh, uh, scientists or social scientists. This is kind of the the franchise that is given to... um, Critics and literary scholars and uh, and religion, uh, but uh, I don't think that we should give any uh, particular credence to people who are protecting their uh, their, their turf. Uh, I, I, it's becoming increasingly clear over the decades and centuries that an understanding of science is uh, absolutely central to our understanding of all the deepest questions of, of uh, who we are, where we came from, what matters. Uh, that uh, if you aren't aware of the, what science has to say about uh, who we are, what, what we're like as a species, then you're really going to be missing a, a lot of insight about uh, human life. And the fact that it upsets certain traditional uh, you know, bastions of commentary shouldn't, uh, shouldn't count, shouldn't, shouldn't matter. Uh, people will always protect their, their turf and their franchise. Uh, what matters is the ideas. That's why I'm always also reluctant when asked uh, who are the people that we should be uh, reading, who are the, uh, what names can we associate with this approach. I always step back because it's not about people. Uh, it's about the ideas, and the ideas are inevitably going to come piecemeal from many thinkers, be refined, exchanged, accumulated, uh, improved, and it's a direction that I hope the culture goes in. It is not uh, trying to anoint some new uh, guru as the, uh, the, the embodiment of this uh, movement. The other thing that I think we have to be very suspicious of uh, is the uh, ever-present um, uh, force of demonizing the younger generation and the direction in which uh, culture and society are going. There is uh, there are always uh, commentators who think that the kids today are uh, dumbing down culture and taking uh, human values with them. This is often directed at uh, anything having to do with the the, uh, the web, uh, as if the difference between being printed on, on uh, dead trees versus being pixels on a screen uh, is going to profoundly influence the, the content of ideas. Uh, there is inevitably an uh, attitude that young people suck, 
that they are uh, illiterate and uh, um, unreflective and unthoughtful and, uh, and so on, ignoring the fact that every generation had that said about them by the older generation and somehow civilization persists. Uh, these are habits that, in fact, I think psychology can remind us that we as a species are prone to them, that when we comment on the direction that intellectual life is going, we should discount our own prejudices, our own uh, natural inclination to say, I and my tribe are entitled to uh, weigh in on, on, on uh, profound issues, but members of some other guild or tribe or clique are not. And my generation is the uh, embodiment of wisdom and experience, and the younger generation are uh, uncouth, illiterate, unwashed, and uncivilized. Uh, knowing from our own psychology that we're all prone to that gives us the distance to discount those uh, flaws and to get a, a better appreciation of what direction the culture is going and what direction it ought to go in. There's no conflict between the sciences and humanities, or at least there, there shouldn't be. It uh, shouldn't be uh, framed as a, as a turf battle as to who gets to speak about what matters. Uh, what matters are the ideas, and we should uh, try to get the deepest, richest, best informed understanding of the human condition from ideas regardless of uh, what people or what discipline originates them.